of the opportunities that arises when we start recognizing how widely received contemporary worship music is across traditions is that then we can start comparing it to things other than other types of songs. And that can reveal some of these other characteristics, these other understandings about worship that are present in it. Um, so for example, I find it really helpful to think about contemporary worship music in comparison with other contemplative prayer practices, like the patterns of prayer associated with the Tizé community, or even something like centering prayer or Christian forms of meditation. Um, and what kinds of um, understandings of worship emerge when we think about music functioning in that way in worship, inviting that sense of contemplative rest in the presence of God or openness to the leading of the spirit, that those kinds of understandings about what we're doing when we're gathering are quite different than the kinds of understandings that are present when it's compared to um, sort of traditional hymns. It's intended to communicate a lot of theological content or to express ideas in a particular way. Podcast listeners of all ages and stages, welcome to episode 56 of the Jolly Thoughts Podcast. I am joining you today live from the front seat of a car in the great corn state of Indiana. I'm here visiting some people and doing some things, and uh, but I want to get this conversation out to y'all as soon as possible. Uh, this is a, a wonderful conversation, and this is uh, a conversation that uh, that uh, is a, it's a first for, for us here in the podcast, which is that we have not one, but two guests. It's a double, double the fun uh, conversation with uh, Sarah Kathleen Johnson and Annalie Lep Thiessen, uh, who we talk about a number of things, but sort of the grounding, um, what, what drives the conversation, what we keep bouncing back to is an article that they released in a, a journal called Worship, which we talk about uh, in the conversation. And the title of the article is... Uh, Contemporary worship music as an ecumenical liturgical movement. So we unpack all of those terms. If you're like, I don't know what any of those words mean, probably maybe you're going to be like, well, this is not a fun podcast for me. Sorry. Uh, but it, I promise if you stick around, um, those words will get elucidated and, and the conversation for me was really quite fruitful. There was a couple of light bulb moments that went off. And so I really, really appreciated Sarah and Annalie taking the time to be patient with me and walk me through it as well. So uh, without any further ado, I will turn this conversation over to uh, Sarah and Annalie. be back in the, in the day when I speak to somebody from southern parts of America, they would they would assume, and I actually got this in writing once back, that my name was M-E-R-R-I-C-K. They're Merrick. Your name is Merrick. I'm like, no, Mark. Yeah, Merrick. Because they produced, I was like, oh, Mark. Like they wanted you to really take the aww. So you never know. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah, uh, that can happen with Mark. That makes me feel better about Annalie too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have an odd spelling, but even the, even so. So Annalie, you are, uh, are you in Ontario? Yes, we're both in Ottawa, actually. You're both in Ottawa. Um, okay. We're neighbors to a certain extent. So that's kind of lovely. That's um, great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so Sarah, you and uh, I don't I haven't met you at all. So Sarah, give me like the briefest of snapshots of who who I'm talking to with Sarah Johnson here. 
So I am an assistant professor of liturgy and pastoral theology at St. Paul University, which is a Roman Catholic university that is federated with the University of Ottawa. Um, I'm connected with this project and with Annalie through work on Voices Together, which is a hymnal and worship book for Mennonites in Canada and the United States that we worked on together for oh, about five years. It was published in 2020 and continue to support its reception in churches. Okay, great. And then are you, are you Canadian? I am Canadian, originally from Waterloo, Ontario. I've moved a lot in the last decade. I'm very happy to call Ottawa home now. Okay, all right. So from, from Waterloo proper, not from Kitchener? Yes. Okay. From Waterloo. From I Waterloo. am from Kitchener proper. Oh that my. So, Look at know, the K the, the yeah. K dub. Using the divides here. Yes. Look at that. You guys are really yinning and yanning all yang, yinning right. and yanging all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, that's wonderful. Okay. I mean I'd actually uh I would like to find out a little bit more about voices together. So what we're actually gonna be talking about is or I guess uh, how is this? The reason that we're chatting uh, is because of a an article that came out in uh worship uh, it's funny. I actually don't really know what this is. So, so let's start by saying it's called, is it the, it's a journal called worship. Uh, but that's a, that's a pretty, like if I put out an album called worship, people would be like, that's how <laughs> precocious of you. So, uh, who, who, who is the actual audience for this particular journal? Uh, so, um, worship is one of the main academic journals in the academic discipline of liturgical studies. And it's based at St. John's Abbey in Minnesota, um, has strong historic connections to the Roman Catholic tradition, but today has a very ecumenical audience, but very much an academic audience and an audience that is connected to, um, to the, the dominant tradition in, in liturgical studies. That's helpful to know so that it's, it's, uh, Roman Catholic, or which I guess then is not just Episcopal, but kind of like liturgical in context. So that's like the broad scope of most of the, at least the uh, originating uh, worldview of a lot of people who'll be reading it. Uh, but then it also has a bent towards, and I always get stuck on ecumenism. I don't really know how to say it. But anyway, so it's a broadly Christian perspective that kind of moves outside of bounds. Uh, ecumenical, I can say, but ecumenism I find harder to say. Uh, and so that's interesting. That it, that's why it's worth noting because the title of this particular article that you guys co-authored together is Contemporary Worship Music as an Ecumenical Liturgical Movement. Uh, and so uh, for many people, again, kind of where you start determines what you're seeing. And so for a lot of people, they're like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's pretty clear, you know, you guys cite somebody near the beginning that talks about how, how broad it actually is. But are you finding that in this particular stream of not necessarily church studies, you could say that, but just kind of academia in general, this is not this particular type of music. And we could talk about the fact that it's, you think of it as more than music, but we'll start with it as music has not gotten necessarily a whole ton of kind of academically rigorous attention. Yes, so there, there's increasing attention on contemporary worship and contemporary worship music in the discipline of liturgical studies. Um, but the discipline of liturgical studies is very much rooted historically in the traditions that are associated what, with what is sometimes called the liturgical movement, which is the, the historical 
research, the theological thinking that really informed significant changes to Christian worship practice around the world, especially rooted in the Roman Catholic reforms of the 1960s at the Second Vatican Council, which then impact Christians across traditions. So there's there's certain uh, narratives that are very dominant in the discipline of liturgical studies that tend to be rooted in, in the Roman Catholic tradition and, and liturgical theology, as well as mainstream Protestant traditions more broadly. But it's addition, it's an, a, an academic discipline where free church traditions, evangelical, Pentecostal traditions have been less well represented historically, although there is increasing attention there. So I would see this article as trying to name some of that increasing influence of contemporary worship practices on the church widely, uh, and then to invite more rigorous reflection across the Christian tradition on um, the theology of these practices and their significance across traditions. I think you also commented, Mark, about like, important to acknowledge where we're coming from a little bit on this. And I think from a, a practical angle too, the statement, the title of the article is a little bit, um, uh, necessary to say in the Mennonite context that we come from, um, where there's this kind of uh, assumption or idea of what like Mennonite worship is, and that's fairly widely held across maybe more traditional North American uh, Mennonite communities, like the ones that Sarah and I both kind of grew up in and emerged from in many respects. Um, and so being able to highlight like this isn't, contemporary worship music isn't something that's like a fad, that's a small thing that's kind of worth overlooking. It's actually a really significant movement that um, is, you know, has a lot of traction ecumenically and within Mennonite um, contexts. Uh, and so I can, I totally appreciate what you're saying about like, this seems kind of obvious, like to a certain extent, it's not particularly noteworthy. Uh, and yet in some of the contexts that we're coming from, it actually feels really, really big to say, uh, because it's just hasn't gotten a lot of traction and has been somewhat overlooked. Uh, and so saying it is saying something that probably should have been said a long time ago to a certain extent. And, and it's finally getting some airtime now. That's helpful. Yeah. So I, I'll have to, there'll be multiple times on this brief conversation where my ignorance will be on full display. I love that. That's okay. Uh, so that's part of, that's part of what we're doing. So I don't really know what you, you allude to the idea that there is sort of a perception of what Mennonite worship would look like. I don't really know what that is. You guys mentioned that you're both from uh, either divide of the Kitchener Waterloo area. My parents lived in Guelph, Ontario for a little while. And uh, when I went to visit them one time, we went and took a drive out to a, I, I, it was some kind of a Mennonite church. And the people who drove up to this particular Mennonite church did so in horses and buggies. Now, so this is the only, like, this is one of the only kinds of touch points I have with, like, what a Mennonite is, because there's not a whole ton of them represented in the Atlantic provinces where I, of uh, Canada, where I've grown up and spent the majority of my life other than through traveling. So I really don't have much of a, con so what is a typical worship life of a Mennonite church like? I think this is a great question and also a very complicated question because it's so diverse. Mennonite worship is so um, not uniform. Um, so to maybe like blow it out even further um the stats have changed a little bit recently somewhere two-thirds three-quarters of um mennonites are in uh latin america asia and africa on a global level so there's a really really strong um prevalence of mennonites very much outside of north america um as a movement um mennonite the anabaptism emerged in um 
Europe kind of spread throughout Europe in the middle of the 1500s response to the um, um, Reformation, um, strong emphasis on adult baptism, um, believers baptism, being able to make that choice, pacifism. Um, and so obviously some of these things were a little bit uh, hot topics uh, and led to Mennonites being um, persecuted in various ways kind of throughout early history and then uh, for the next couple hundred years as well. Um, and so that's kind of the emergence, but we see, you know, you know, Anabaptism is certainly not only in Switzerland where it began. Um, it's it's much broader than that now. Uh, and so because of that, it's just really, there, there's so many different expressions of Mennonite worship. Um, those, there are still kind of core beliefs that hold uh, folks together again, adult baptism again, you know, an emphasis on peace building and pacifism and some, you know, there are a range of, of core beliefs. Um, but, uh, the expressions of worship really, really vary. So yeah, both of the, the churches that Sarah and I both grew up in fall, um, nicely into this kind of like, what I would describe as like traditional for Mennonite church, Canada and Mennonite church, USA, which are, um, two of the big Anabaptist denominations in North America, the big Mennonite ones, um, and would have a strong emphasis on hymn singing, four-part hymns. Um, um, often that's been a cappella. Um, that is maybe less a cappella, a cappella is in without accompaniment, um, so just voices. Um, maybe maybe less of that now than there would have been in the past, um, but still an emphasis on that. Just kind of... Um, um, uh, yeah, a lot of pride in, in a, a lovely way. This, you know, music has been something that's carried Mennonites through a lot of this kind of um, upheaval and and kind of trauma throughout their history. Uh, and so pride in that hymn singing. And also, though, we can recognize that that's a, a very specific part of what Mennonite music actually looks like today. Um, so I often think of it as this tension of like, that's what a lot of people think of, like in our kind of more ecumenical congregational song circles, people are like, oh, you're Mennonite. You guys love singing in four part harmony without accompaniment, um, which is true to a certain extent, especially of certain uh, Anabaptist groups in North America, Mennonite groups. Um, but also there's just, it's so much more broad. So I also grew up at a church in Kitchener Waterloo. My parents are pastors. We bounced around a lot, um, have been to a number of uh, different churches, but the one that I was at in my teenage years, um, we sang almost exclusively contemporary worship music. Um, and that is somewhat unusual, but also really not unusual for Mennonite churches like that. It's very normal for Mennonite communities to sing contemporary worship music, even though that kind of goes against this broader perception and also perception that Mennonites sometimes have of ourselves that we really only sing these hymns. Um, and so it's kind of both an internally held perception about ourselves to a certain extent, depending on you know where, where you fall on the spectrum of Mennonite worship, and definitely um, something that that others often have as kind of like a, a um, it's not even a stereotype because there is history to it, but just kind of like a yeah perception of it. But I would also say Mennonites are also extremely diverse in terms of Sarah and I do not take horse and buggies to church. Um, at least I, I'm fairly certain Sarah doesn't. I, I don't. <laughs> but that's a sweet um, ride, though. I mean, that's really that's I mean, that is a, a yeah, it's a great way to get there. It yes. is a great way to get there. Yeah, yeah. I wish Ottawa was more uh, receptive to that. Um, <laughs> set up for it. So so no, we don't we we do not do that. Our our recent ancestors do not do that. Sure. Um, there's there's very little overlap between that way of life and um, the denominations that we are primarily working in, Mennonite Church Canada and Mennonite Church USA. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is shared history and there are shared values in terms of simplicity um, and 
yeah, pacifism and some of these other things. And so uh, for the most part, it's not a super helpful uh, comparison point because there are just so many differences um, for the context that we're primarily talking about. Uh, but yes, these are these are shared ancestors and part of this broader Anabaptist family, absolutely. Yeah, okay, that was a deep dive, but I think for, for me, at the very least, that was a little bit helpful. So the, yeah, that, I mean, that's so let's go ahead and then dig into the article proper. One of the things we probably should do, you know, we've talked a little bit about Mennonite tradition and, and why this is helpful. We've talked a little bit about what the target audience of the, the journal is. But we also, you spent some time in here talking about what uh, contemporary worship music is, and you helpfully shortened it down to CWM because you have to say it so many times in the article, it would have taken up the overwhelming majority of what you're actually saying. So what is, in your guys' estimation, or for the for the purposes of this article at the very least, what are you calling CWM? Oh, this is a this is one of the places where these conversations sometimes get bogged down. And this article is definitely shaped by the many conversations that Annalie and I have had with communities, with practitioners about contemporary worship music, where we get these questions about what is and is not in this category. So we found it much more helpful to think of contemporary worship music in terms of a family resemblance instead of a list of essential characteristics. So that means we're not looking for sort of key markers that every contemporary worship song must have, but instead we're seeing patterns and how these expressions of worship relate to each other. Um, so if you think about it, it's like, I look like my brother and I look like my grandma, but my grandma and my brother don't really look like each other, but we all have this family resemblance. Um, so so that's that's kind of the, the framework that we're using. It comes from a philosopher, uh, Wittgenstein. Um, and then there are three types of uh, characteristics or traits that we look at, including some musical characteristics, uh, which Annalie could say more about, as well as the context of origin of uh, contemporary worship songs, which tend to come from some key sources, although this is also definitely a grassroots movement too. And then also the, the liturgical context, the context of reception, the way in which they're intended to be used in worship. So those three different characteristics are how we think about what is considered contemporary worship music. You, yeah, and, and at one point in time, you mentioned the idea that a certain musical, I mean, we're, we're using the word music. Uh, it's, it's, it's the noun uh, in, in the contemporary, in the worship. Uh, and so, uh, so you, you talk about the idea that there's like certain kind of like, you know, um, things like the way that the music is sung, like it actually has like a certain syncopation to it. You kind of do your best to give us some kind of like uh, characteristics of it. Uh, but then you also acknowledge pretty clearly that that means that there are, it's not easy uh, to tell what it is, but you go one step further uh, in the article and you kind of say that contemporary worship music isn't, even though I just said it was, that's the noun that we're talking about. You allude to the fact that it's actually something different, that it's actually kind of, or at least the way that you're interpreting it, it is itself a liturgical movement or liturgical expression. So it's not as though the songs in particular exist um, without a broader context or the, I think at one point in time you say that you can take uh, the uh, the songs out of the worship expression, but you can't take the worship expression out of the songs. I may be not exactly quoting it precisely. Maybe you have it at the fore. But what what do you mean by that in terms of like what is the what is the form, as it were, of the worship that contemporary worship music is supposed to be providing? Oh, well, this is born from um, 
The fact that so often this really has been approached as music by musicologists, or it's been compared to kind of traditional hymns, uh, whatever might be meant by that as well. Um, but if we step back and look at it in this broader, more holistic way, it's not just an expression of music. It's also something, an expression of worship that is really integrally connected to theological understandings of the meaning and purpose of worship and how one engages in communal Christian ritual. Um, and that those traits are are really tied to this expression of worship. Um, and, and while this expression of worship tends to have a particular home in an extended song set, an extended time of sung, congregational worship through music, um, it can and often is when we're talking about its reception in Catholic or mainstream Protestant context, it's kind of extracted from that liturgical structure, that worship structure, the worship teaching structure, and instead is used in other ways. Um, but that, uh, I, I think this is debatable, but I do think that it still carries some of those values, some of those ideas about what wor worship is really about, its meaning, its purpose, how to engage in it, in the songs itself, and then some of those um, understandings theologically about worship get brought into these other, other contexts um, through the use of contemporary worship songs um, outside of its kind of home base in evangelical and, and Pentecostal worship. Okay, well, I mean, if, if we can dive in a little further, if it's okay. So what are some of those uh, those meanings that are maybe a little bit more at home, uh, as you say, in their original context, but that do tend to get ported over, at least in lesser degrees, when they get used in other contexts as well? Mm -hmm. And I think one of, one of the opportunities that arises when we start recognizing how widely received contemporary worship music is across traditions is that then we can start comparing it to things other than other types of songs mm -hmm. and that can reveal some of these other characteristics these other understandings about worship that are present in it um, so for example i find it really helpful to think about contemporary worship music in comparison with other contemplative prayer practices, like the patterns of prayer associated with the Tizé community, or even something like centering prayer or Christian forms of meditation. Um, and what kinds of um, understandings of worship emerge when we think about music functioning in that way in worship, inviting that sense of contemplative rest in the presence of God or openness to the leading of the spirit that those kinds of understandings about what we're doing when we're gathering are quite different than the kinds of understandings that are present when it's compared to, to, to um, sort of traditional hymns. It's intended to communicate a lot of theological content or to express ideas in a particular way or sort of articulate faith in this sort of more didactic sense. But then once we start comparing it to something like contemplative prayer, it opens up these other, other possibilities. Another one that comes up in the literature is comparing contemporary worship music to the practice of communion, to this sacramental encounter with God, um, and that uh, that this uh, celebration of the Eucharist, of communion, of um, receiving God through bread and wine, of remembering, of inviting the Spirit's present presence through this act of communion might also be analogous to what's happening in contemporary worship music and what um, what more can we discover about both of these practices by recognizing the, the sacramental dimensions of each of them, the way in which um, the invisible is made present to us through the material or through the sonic, um, through these practices. Yes, you mentioned uh, in the article, somebody, I believe it's Sarah Koenig, who uh, talks about that kind of sacramentality of music. I mean, 
to me, I mean, both, I also want to get back to Teze, um, but I, I want to hit here for a second. Like when I read that, I was, uh, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a practitioner, uh, of contemporary praise and worship music. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not just a pusher, I'm a user as well, but I had to admit that when I read that, that idea that it's, that this is in some respects become a way of what I almost construed it as, it was saying almost a way of replacing as it were the Lord's supper. Like it becomes a different, uh, a supplanting sacrament that was jarring. Um, I, I wonder to what degree you view that as like a, if it is true that that's what's happening, could you say that that is a uh, a neutral or positive thing? Or would you say that that is something that ought to give people pause in terms of how the flow... Now, granted, different people... I don't, I don't know uh, your Anabaptist theologies have, might have different sacramentalities to them, so I don't know to what degree uh, Eucharist plays a role in Anabaptist theology. But as you kind of wrestle through that, like, can you... Do you view that... Can you see that as being maybe a historical or somewhat problematic for the church at large. Oh, I think I'm, I might actually disagree with your, your interpretation. Okay. <laughs> and that, um, I don't think that Sarah Koenig is arguing that it's supplanting or replacing it. And I'd also point here to um, Lester Ruth and Sui Hong Lim's work in, in their book, Loving on Jesus, which has a really great chapter about sacramentality. And I don't see it so much as, as replacing or sort of being in competition but rather um, inviting a dialogue between traditions that have valued different things and saying traditions that have really valued encounter with God through the Eucharist and traditions that have really valued encounter with God through praise and worship can be in conversation with each other if we recognize some of the shared dynamics in these different experiences. So I I don't see it in terms of supplanting or competition, but rather a, a sense of mutual recognition and even an opportunity for discovering some of the really interesting interconnections and possibilities when these practices come together. Um, one example of that that I'm just so intrigued by is Eucharistic adoration. So how um, Roman Catholics and some Anglicans would encounter the presence of Christ through the reserved sacraments for being in the presence of a consecrated host. Um, and, and contemporary worship music, which is some, which are sometimes combined. And that there, to me, as someone who's sort of alongside both of these traditions in certain ways, I can see this close connection between these practices because they're both about this contemplative, intimate encounter with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they really mutually reinforce and enrich each other so much. When I think about uh, attending adoration with contemporary worship music in the Basilica at the University of Notre Dame, it is Notre Dame, no, not uh, Notre Dame, by the way. Um, <laughs> but when I think about those um, those practices fitting together in that community, there's just a deep resonance there. And I think naming the sacramentality of both can invite some some interesting conversation and dialogue and mutual learning at that place. Okay, good. I'm happy to be corrected. That's wonderful. That's you. You know, it's good because I mean, this happens in real time. And say so now you know. Um, so N- Notre Dame, not Notre Dame. Okay, that's fine. You can call it. You know, tomato, tomato, shlemiel, shlemazel. Uh, something else that I can't pronounce is teze. How do you say it? You, you were you were today. Right Does that call it? okay? So I, I mentioned my, my ignorance on display. My ignorance was on. I mean, I don't. I don't even. I've decided to start owning my ignorance because it's too expensive to rent it. And so when I was in Montreal this last summer, um, it was actually where I got a chance to meet Annalie, Annalie uh, for the first uh, time in uh, in person. Uh, but I was walking along and somebody was just talking about the fact that they had just come back from Teze. 
and how important it was and how wonderful it was. And I was like, I could, I didn't even know enough to, I couldn't even spell it. So I couldn't Google it. So I have no, I had no idea what was going on. So, um, I mean, and you guys mentioned in here something that I thought was interesting. I have since looked it up a little bit, uh, but I'm still by no means an expert, but, um, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about what it, what it is for those of us who don't know? Is a is an ecumenical movement, but also a commu- monastic community in France. Uh, in I believe the town is called Tizé, um, and uh, it kind of operates as well. It's I mean it's a bunch of different things. So I went to this, went to Tizé in I don't know summer twenty eighteen maybe, uh, and stayed there for a week and ate with people and had small groups with people and read the Bible with people. And there were, there were like, I think there were about 4,000 of us there when I was there. Like it was a massive amount of people wow. and they were um, largely like young Europeans on summer break. Um, so it was, it was a really cool experience. Um, and then we'd pray together and have these like kind of short um, services a few times a day um and the evening one i believe was at like 8 p.m and it would just last until after midnight people would just be singing and so you're singing tizé songs which are often um quite short uh have a, a short text um often kind of based on scripture but you know a, a range of themes and of contents uh, and they would repeat the same text for maybe like 20 minutes, the same song for a long time. Um, and you're just kind of letting the words wash over you again, kind of back, back to contemplative prayer, like really similar to that of just kind of entering into what the text and the music is doing. Um, what I didn't realize in, in North America, often when I encounter Taze services, there's like beautiful instrumental parts and many, many instruments and um, soloists and all of these things. And when I was at Taze, it was uh, like not even a full keyboard, like a three octave piano keyboard set to the guitar settings. It sounds like a guitar, but it's a keyboard. Um, and so, and that was, that was what was driving the music for that, you know, 20 minutes that were immersed in the same short piece. Um and so that's that was kind of my experience, but it's also a, a way of worshiping, a way of praying. And so the songs from that movement have gotten traction far beyond the Tizé community too. And so we've had Tizé songs in like their seminar 1992 Mennonite hymnal, which is a predecessor to the 2020 hymnal that we talked about before. Um, there are people, I mean, I think when I was in high school in Kitchener, um, people were starting Taze services and people like I remember going to a Taze service with my parents in the evening, like Sunday evening, um, often kind of candlelit. Um, but it's just it's I mean, I think it offers something so different to the busyness of um, what is kind of traditional Mennonite worship, like what I grew up with. It's it's just so much more open um, and just you're able to just kind of enter more fully into what is happening. And so uh, I think it's a really interesting comparison point, because for me, Tizé was all, like the, the narrative that I heard around Tizé was like, Tizé is amazing. We love being able to enter into this music and just letting it wash over us. Like, we love this. We love how simple it is. We love how repetitive it is. Like, have you guys done Tizé? Because if you haven't, you should. Um, and the narrative around contemporary worship music was like, repetition is bad. Right. Oh my gosh, it's so mockable that they'll sing the same two lines for 15 minutes. Uh, and so there's just this like very clear uh, divide between how one form of repetition was received and how the other form of repetition was received. Um, and so I think 
they both illuminate each other in interesting ways. And it's really interesting to kind of put them in dialogue and say like, what we're doing with Teze, we can do with contemporary worship. Like these are functioning in very, very similar ways. Um, and one is not better than the other. Like there's no hierarchy around this. Like, yes, repeating music has a beautiful, you know, liturgical function and allows us to experience some, something so um, unique in worship. And this is a good thing. Um, and so contemporary worship, does, this contemporary worship did not invent repetition. Um, this is something that that we see in many different forms of worship, uh, and this is a good thing. And so being able to kind of put those in dialogue, I think, just helps us dig a little bit deeper on some of the maybe assumptions that we might bring to contemporary worship or to Teze um, and to kind of help help us have conversation points for these things. Yes, that's really good. Uh yeah, because you said there was interesting in the article, you said some people who uh, would have challenges with contemporary worship music said would be perhaps more inclined to embrace this form of worship. So obviously you can see, I mean, I think it's a really helpful kind of analogies between the two, you know, different, but obviously they're also, so there's similarities, but there's also dissimilarities in some respects. And some of them might be theological. I think that's kind of the, the part of the iceberg that's harder to harder to see is just like what's going on beneath the surface of where some of this material originates from like the communities my guess is that the communities from whence those particular uh french congregational communal songs arise from look different than the communities from which a lot of our popular contemporary worship music comes from right and so and you mentioned the idea that it's not necessarily easy to disconnect or, or may, maybe it's not necessarily easy to disconnect um, the actual kind of end user application of these songs from the sources from from whence they come, uh, and so it's it's. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea that I think that's a great argument uh, in some respects is to say, I mean, look, they're singing the same thing for 18 minutes or for you know for three hours in a row, uh, and it's it's you know it's not. Uh, but it, but also in some respects, would you say that the lifestyle that comes along with it, in some respects, is is somewhat different, I guess, to the people. So when you guys put together a hymnal, so you put together not just voices together, but you also put together, if I understand them correctly, supplementals in some respects that kind of help people in the short term. Um, what sort of metrics, when you're looking at uh, for the Mennonite Church uh, in U.S. and Canada? Um, what sort of like criteria do you have for a lot, for saying okay now this is a this is a contemporary worship song that is that makes the grade and that is going to be helpful for us versus one that doesn't I know that we're kind of coming away from the article a little bit but I promise we'll jump back to it in just a moment but for I mean you guys have real lived experience with trying to answer through these questions for your faith community so uh, yes, and I'm sure we could talk for multiple hours about how to select songs uh, for a hymnal for Voices Together and, and the very collaborative communal process that was part of that. But it's really rooted in the idea that what is included in a hymnal both reflects what communities are already singing. It's, a, it's pastoral, it's meeting existing needs, and it's also setting some prophetic new directions and inviting um, us to grow into where God call, is calling us to be in the future, and that both of those dynamics are present in selecting songs. And that's certainly true of the contemporary worship music that's included in Voices Together. So it, it's an increase from about seven songs in the previous hymnal published in 1992, and it's two supplements from the 2000s, to more than 70 songs that could be considered contemporary worship music and Voices Together. So 
how to choose which 70 songs, which sounds like a lot, but like think how many contemporary worship songs there are out there. It's actually very few. Um, so, so part of what we're trying to do throughout the hymnal, and especially in this section, is to think about how to present a balance of material. So how to, especially for something like contemporary worship music that people tend to think of as, oh, it's all praised Jesus. But how to say, no, this is an expression of worship that can actually invite us into many different acts of worship. Yes, into praise, but also into lament and into prayer. Um, this is an, a, an expression of worship that we can use in every season of the Christian year to tell the fullness of the Christian story. So really trying to fill out those different kind of acts of worship and, and aspects of the Christian story through the songs that we chose. And then also trying to represent kind of the historical sweep of, of the tradition, as we do in a hymnal with many other different expressions of music, just like we would include you know, medieval chant forms. We would also include contemporary worship music of the 1970s and 80s, kind of represent the, the historic contemporary worship music. And, and it still has value for us, as does chant, as does hymnody of the 18th or 19th centuries. Um, so it does include that sweep, but also wanting to include more recent examples as well. Um, Build My Life is in Voices Together. It was the top song in 2019 when we were making that final list. Um, and then it also really resonates with Mennonite theological commitments, um, especially around social action. And that that kind of um, influence is present too. So in addition to thinking about what songs do people know and love already, what can we introduce that really speaks to the particulars of our tradition too, and that draws on the songs that are being written in this expression of worship by Mennonite songwriters um, to, to include the voices of our, our own tradition here too. I think it's worth worth noting too, like Sarah highlighted how, you know, seven examples between the hymnal and the supplements, uh, the predecessor. Um, but that doesn't mean that Mennonites weren't singing it. Mennonites have been singing contemporary worship for a long time. Right. Um, and so because of that, because, you know, even though it wasn't in our our official, you know, printed songbooks, um, doesn't mean people weren't doing it. It also has had a really um, um, notable influence on Mennonite songwriting. Uh, and so there are lots of folks who are Anabaptists who are writing um, in a kind of way that's influenced by um, contemporary worship music. We, I was just talking on the weekend about one of the songs in the collection, which is written by a Mennonite pastor who talks about how she wanted to write. She grew up in her Mennonite church singing contemporary worship music, and she wanted to write something um, that was in that same kind of musical idiom, but that allowed more space for doubt and for questioning and for kind of, um, yeah, not being in a in a more uncomfortable space and so she she wrote a song in the style of contemporary worship music a contemporary worship song um that that had that thematic content that she wanted so again just kind of recognizing that that this has been informing our songwriters for a long time uh, and so like sarah mentioned reflecting what's already out there um we're reflecting the work of anabaptist songwriters who've been writing contemporary worship for for decades um, writing contemporary worship music. So uh, I think that's another kind of exciting angle of it is being able to say like, this is a very important part of our denominational uh, musical landscape. And so we want to be able to, to recognize that too. Okay, that's good for context. So now if we hop back to the article, contemporary worship music as an ecumenical liturgical movement. So ecumenical. So uh, part of the idea, I think you guys quote Monique Ingalls near the beginning, who says something to the effect of, you know, 500 million, maybe, uh, you know, upwards of a quarter of all of the, the Christians worldwide uh, use contemporary worship as their primary liturgical expression. It's funny, when I think of the idea that it's going to be ecumenical, so when I think of 
what I think is something that's going to kind of build bridges, that's going to help people um, see across divides and say, hey, you know, we might have some differences, but we also have some similarities. Like I think it's going to kind of unite at the core. I think, I think, well, I'm going to go to uh, Zambia or I'm going to go to Zurich and I'm going to be able to sing the same song. And we're going to be like, oh, look, we all sing Hillsong songs. Like that's, that isn't that great. That, we're all united. Uh, like as though we'll be able to somehow, which of course presumes not just the same melody, but the same language for it to be, you know, kind of literally coherent or whatever. So obviously whatever that image I had in my mind of something that's truly kind of worldwide ecumenical breaks down pretty fast. But I did at least think that we would probably have some sort of a literal shared songbook that that would be part of what would help make um, that divide more bridgeable. But when you guys are referring to this as an ecumenical thing, do you mean the style of of the worship? So literally, like kind of like the form of of the songs in terms of like, you know, the verse chorus and then now verse chorus, three different kind of bridge. We can talk about that later. But the idea that there's there's a, you know, a, a more of a, a format that's different than than hymns, that, that that whatever that form of music is, that's the ecumenical expression. I th- yeah, I think that's a complicated question and a good question to kind of interrogate exactly how we're kind of talking about this. And we don't talk a ton in the article about kind of the global reach of contemporary worship. I think we, it's implied in some places and we get to it a little bit. Um, but that's that's another really interesting kind of discussion. And I think there's a lot of layers to that conversation about where does the style originate from um, in both positive and negative ways that it's been adopted um, in a range of contexts around the world. Um, I think we do have examples of, like I immediately think of Waymaker by Sanach, who's um, a songwriter, worship minister in Nigeria, who wrote, um, yeah, Waymaker, uh, and how that has been widely adopted um, and in many respects just fits really, really nicely into um, or resembles so closely contemporary worship music that emerged from North America because it shares the same, you know, exactly verse, chorus, bridge kind of format. Um, she wrote it in English, so there's no language um, difference there. Um, or we think I was having some conversations recently about a contemporary worship music ministry in China that is just so clearly, some other scholars were saying it just so clearly is resembles um, contemporary worship ministries that we see in North America. Like they're just drawing from the same musical pot um and so yes to a certain extent that is part of it i think that that this form of music and all forms of popular music like this is this is to a certain extent just one example in a discussion about how popular music um and popular music styles are disseminated around the world and then adopted and then changed in their unique kind of context of origin um i I think ecumenically if we think maybe especially north america in dialogue with the mennonite church and our you know Mennonite context if we look at other similar kind of hymnal projects or just worship projects in general we see that contemporary worship is being adopted across different traditions in North America for sure um and so we can see you know representation in um you know in the United Church of Canada supplements now I'm thinking Canada or I mean any number of of hymnals will have contemporary worship included in it. And so that points to this being uh, an expression of worship that is adopted across. And I guess, I guess the question is, are those the same songs? 
So are you seeing the same songs start to emerge in these various supplementals and hymnals, Sarah? That's what I'd like to speak to, actually. I do think it's partly an expression of worship, which we would see reflected in things like National Congregation Study in the United States, but it's also specific songs. It's also that when I visit churches in many different traditions, even if there are many aspects of the liturgy that are less familiar to me, I might still encounter a song that I know really well. Um, There are a few examples of this in the article, but the one that's coming to mind right now for me was a visit to the the Cyril Malabar Cathedral in Chicago. Um, So the Cyril Malabar tradition um, traces its origins to the ministry of the Apostle Thomas in India in the first century. So very much um, a non-Western tradition, very much an Eastern Christian tradition liturgically. Um, And in this community, I'm the only person who's not wearing traditional Indian dress, um, the only person who is not able to engage in the primary languages that are being spoken. Um, Yet in the middle of this um, Eucharistic liturgy, a young man got up and he led Lead Me to the Cross by Hillsong, a song that I knew every word of and was able to sing along with. And I'm surprised how often this happens to me as someone who visits pretty broad range of Christian traditions fairly regularly, is that this will be the moment where, oh, there's something here that's familiar in an otherwise unfamiliar space. So there's something that surpri- I'm sort of surprised by an encounter with a specific song that, that I know that's also present here. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other example that's coming to mind in this moment, too, is I was watching um, the vigil that took place in Las Vegas in 2017, following a really um, devastating mass shooting. And often we think of what do what do people sing in this moment? It's Amazing Grace, the song that, that everyone knows. But that's not the song that they sang on that occasion. They sang How Great Is Our God by Chris Tomlin. That that was the song that it was perceived that people would know, would be able to bring this community together in this vigil thrown together on the steps of City Hall, probably at the last minute, just with a couple people with their guitars. And to me, that was sort of a moment of recognizing, oh, this has this has entered into kind of a popular kind of public music repertoire, hmm. this specific song and, and likely other songs like it in a way that that makes it accessible to people in a moment like that, in, in the same way that something like Amazing Grace might have in the past. And may still today too. I'm not saying they're replacing each other necessarily, um, but that 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 this music and some specific songs might be starting to take on that kind of capacity um, to connect across difference in that type of moment. Yeah, we would sing "My Chains Are Gone" if we were going to sing "Amazing Grace," though. Probably, <laughs> uh, honestly, I think that genuinely for the, for a lot of people in the tradition that I'm a part of, I I I would think that they would not uh, they would not know that that's not original. <laughs> <laughs> a little a little chorus mm-hmm. add-on. Uh, yeah, fascinating. So, I mean, and, and it's really, I mean, and this is outside the scope of the article, but hey, you guys are, uh, you know, you're well-learned people. Like, it's just how, like, how are certain songs the ones that end up rising to kind of like, you know, societal, um, it's not just they recognize them, but they become kind of imprinted. Like how are, how are some, did you guys, I mean, you have thoughts and feel, you, know, you can see, you can disclaim it however you want, but I mean, like, like how, why is it that how great is our God uh, made it to the cut? Um, did that, for example, did that one make it into your songbook? It did. Okay. It did. And, and in part because it's um, a really significant heart song for Spanish speaking Mennonite communities. So when voices together, it's included in both Spanish and English. 
this question dovetails so much with the work that I know that you're doing, Mark, with worship leader research and sort of um, I'm thinking of the survey that you guys did that and you'll be able to correct me on this, but talking about how like you know, what inspires a song? I think that was sort of one of the questions and mm -hmm. the kind of interesting cross-section of um, range of ages and responses in terms of like, is it a contract? Is it literally like you got a contract, you have to write a song mm -hmm. um, or is it like divine inspiration or what is it? And I think we see a lot of change throughout the history of contemporary worship music in terms of what allows some songs to rise more than others. I'm thinking of I Love You, Lord by Laurie Klein, which I think she has described as quietly making its way around the world. But that is like, a widely known contemporary worship song number one on ccli but just kind of i think she would say there wasn't one like big aha moment where it rose it just quietly and consistently became really well known mm -hmm. um whereas you have others maybe like um well i'm thinking like ten thousand real reasons i feel like everyone woke up one morning and was like we all know the song right like it's just like <laughs> suddenly was there and we sure. and people knew it um yeah. and so i think like as the industry has evolved what makes a a chart topping song has really, really changed as the mechanisms to promote songs have changed. I think maybe where I'm at in my research and there's, you know, a million good responses to this question, but um, increasingly, I think um, uh, there, there is a, a good reason to have the perception that some songs, and, and I think this is true. Some songs just have um, a text or music or are speaking a theological message that is just really resonating in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so, they just rise because of the way that they're speaking to people. I also think a lot of the time, some songs are just a lot of money's put into promoting them. And so then we also get to know them that way. Um, and that's not good or bad. We promote things all the time. Um, but realistically, that's also one of the really big reasons why some songs will just like get to be that well known. But I'm not sure you can, I'm not sure how much you can look at a Chris Tomlin album and be like, yeah, why did this one rise so much more than the other? Like, I think, yeah, it's a great question because I'm not sure that there's there are a lot of theories about it, but it doesn't seem like an objective reason why one might be resonate more broadly than another one. But I do, I do think this connects to the idea of contemporary worship music as a movement, and that if we can recognize it as something dynamic with multiple origins and trajectories that's changing over time, if we're doing that historical work or if other scholars are doing that good historical work, that's part of what allows us to start asking questions like this. Why have some songs risen and why have others not? Mm -hmm. What are some of the, the forces behind that? What are then the implications of the songs that rise and those that don't uh, as well, or whose voices are, are loudest in this conversation? But it's really through seeing it as a movement and starting to name that, starting to narrate its history um, that we can start to interrogate um, what's happening here. Yeah, well, if we could take one last foray before we close things off with your actual journal, then you provided a nice little, you know, whose voices are being heard. Uh, I've, I've, uh, Anley has been kind to give me other articles that I've read as well. So I read this, the one that you wrote about uh, the Waymaker, uh, you know, example in particular about how we can interact with um, songs that originate outside of North America, how we can best deal with them. And I thought that was a really eye-opening and, and thought-provoking uh a conversation. The one that I didn't get a chance to really see very much on is your work on female voices in in songwriting. But in in that article that I just mentioned, you you start off with a little, one little quote that teases at the idea that at a certain point in time in the 1990s, uh, female songwriters represented I think you said something like close to 25 percent of the songs that were on the top of the charts. And then by the time you got to where we were, which is closer to the you know late 2010s, early 2020s, it was down to something like 4% of the songs that were on the charts. Uh, I know that you've done a bit of a 
you know, you're, you're not a bit of a, a significant deep dive in this area and you're thinking about it a lot. Um, just what's your current state of thinking or research on this particular topic and how certain voices are maybe less represented in, I guess, not just in, in the output, because that's, I guess that's part of the dialogue that we're having back and forth. You, you alluded, both of you alluded that there's literally hundreds, if not actually not, there's at least thousands of contemporary worship music songs that are being written and released all the time. Every megachurch, every church of any size, and just independent songwriters, you know, they're all putting out songs that fit in this format, but only certain ones are rising to public consciousness, you know, outside of, you could be a hero in your own hometown, but if you want that song to be sung in the next town over, something has to happen. And so for those songs that start to get kind of noticed, that's where we're seeing what appears to be less and less kind of diversity in the representation. And so uh, maybe, I don't want to frame it as why or what, but just kind of speak to that for a moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you're you're right about the general kind of trajectory of definitely more women. The, the stats that you're pulling are specifically solo women songwriters, um, which we see a lot of in the, you know, the first CCLI list was 1988. We see a lot of them. It's like 30% of that list, roughly. Um, and then we see solo women songwriters really declining. But what we see is the rise of um, collaborations across the board. So whereas there used to be maybe like one collaboration on an early list, now we have uh, maybe one solo song on a recent list. Um, across the board, we're seeing rise in collaborations, decline in solo songwriters, and then with that decline in women overall. Um, and I think that just points to the rise of, and development of like a really established industry. Um, I know I've heard our column colleague Adam Prez talked about like how much is the Christian music industry worth like if we had a number and I think it's it's a hard thing to know but you get the idea that it's just a huge amount of money and time and resources that are embedded in this industry sure. um and so that means that you know like a Lori Klein who's writing the song on outside of her trailer on a Wednesday morning having a rough day song quietly makes it its way around the world what we're seeing now is like staff songwriters at major labels who have a right together maybe it's hosted by apple music like there's a big like industry things that are happening that are around it and so you can't be um i think there's just a uh the the values that are put on evangelical women uh, and women in general in today's culture just make it a little bit harder to be able to fully thrive in that really industry-oriented space where you're touring and probably you're touring during the years that you're supposed to be having children and you're supposed to be at a right all day, but you also have to have supper on the table. And, um, you know, so there's, there's just dynamics around the industry developing and around what, where women are feeling called that make it complicated. Um, I think. And so, uh, yes, I think not to like, I think the flip side of this is that, you know, I don't want to paint the industry as all bad and all bad for the the cause of diversity because we have also seen a few people rise on the charts who are saying I couldn't get signed to, signed to a Christian label, but my fans will stream me nonstop and get me on that Christian chart. Um, and those are maybe especially bringing in like LGBTQ plus voices or um, interesting crossovers or songwriting collectives. And so I, I just think it's complicated to say like the, the rise of this industry has been bad for the cause of diversity because it's also been good in some respects. Hmm. Um, but I think I think it's it just has made it more complicated to be a songwriter. This is your full-time gig if you're doing this in a way that it's getting recognized on the CCLI lists. And so along with that just comes questions about who's who and who's whose role is what and you know what's the um kind of 
theological authority that comes with being a songwriter and what does that look like for each unique church and those kinds of questions. Uh, and if I if I could um, mention just one connection to Voices Together in this too, is that Annalie is now approaching this as a scholar, but in her work on Voices Together, she also really advocated for and gave leadership to including more songs, especially contemporary worship songs written by women. So that was another factor that was part of um, the song selections in Voices Together were what uh, was amplifying women's voices uh, and other minoritized perspectives in the contemporary work of music that is included. Um, and while I recognize we need to talk about the industry, and I think naming this as a, an ecumenical liturgical movement makes that conversation everyone's conversation, not just the conversation of a few, and that's a good thing. Um, I also don't want to lose sight of those kind of hometown heroes, of the, the worship leaders who have been empowered through encountering this music to write their own songs for their own communities. Mm -hmm. And that that's part of an expression of worship that is accessible to a different group of people as well. Um, and that this is, is often kind of bubbling up in, in local contexts and communities and um, receiving the gifts of everyone in our, our, our churches as part of what I hope that this, um, this article can do too, is to say as an ecumenical liturgical movement, who are the people in, in our churches across Christian traditions who are bringing these gifts of musical, liturgical worship leadership, um, and how can we receive that and, and be led into worship by them as well? That's wonderful. Yeah, that's really, really good. I like that a lot. Uh, okay, I want to just bring it back to the article for the, this last little closing thing. You talked about the idea of kind of form. Uh, and so, this is, again, it's funny. You both mentioned that you're you're no foreigners to contemporary worship music practices. Uh, I think if you were, um, it, then it could be, and maybe you, oh dear listener, are. I have no idea. So if you don't kind of know the tropes and the way that these things kind of play, then this could seem like an almost... Uh, this sentence may or not may or not make sense, but yeah, idea that that there's a contemporary worship music has a distinct expression of worship and it benefits from being prepared. You say prepared and led in particular ways, uh, and so I, I I'm wondering, could you give me just a few uh, snippets on some of the ways in which the contemporary worship music is led, uh, prepared and led in particular ways, and how that might be distinct from the way that maybe some of the original. Uh, like the people who are reading this article might not be as familiar with. I think one of the things that comes immediately to mind, and there are a huge range of ways that this may or may not be distinct. Um, um, the church that I, the first church that I grew up in um, would be like song, call to worship, song, announcements, song, scripture reading, song, sermon, song, praise the people. Um, and we don't by and large see that kind of order in a lot of contemporary worship services. You'll see like a song set. Um, and that could be two songs that are extended and sung for a long time. It could be four or five songs. It could be, you know, that'll change depending on the, the church. And then you might have your announcements, your sermon, and then maybe a closing song or maybe not. Um, but the song set really lends itself well to contemporary worship music because of the ways that this, you know, you can, I think there's a lot that instruments can do to bridge the different songs. The themes can build upon each other and it kind of has this trajectory that you are a participant in. Um, and the songs kind of lead you to a certain place. And again, um, Lester Ruth and Sui Hong Lim have written about that kind of trajectory in, in their scholarship on contemporary worship. Um, and so I think uh, I just led a worship service on Sunday 
and my husband was helping me lead it and we were both like let's do a song set like my church does not do a song set but like I think we should do a song set because that'll just feel really like like at home for the songs that we were wanting to choose um and so I think like there's there are lots of benefits to a song set the church that I grew up at in my teen years did song sets uh, and you just the, the songs kind of are in dialogue with each other in a different way and then can kind of both the songs all contribute to taking you a certain direction um, mm. in a unique way, whereas you don't get that so much if you do like song and then you break it up all the time. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind that like I have been in many powerful services where you do a contemporary worship song with a scripture on one side and a prayer on the other, and it's not surrounded by other music. And that is wonderful too. Um, but there is something really interesting about doing it in that maybe more like home context where you get to put it in dialogue with other songs and they kind of work together um, to create a kind of atmosphere um, and kind of liturgical journey for you. I, I can't believe I, I was today years old when I finally realized that if you call it with a set, like, so there's been a lot of poo poo on the idea that like, um, but then when you run a lot of songs together, you're calling it a set list sounds a little bit performative and it sounds kind of like, you know, oh my, what a show, whatever. Uh, and so I, I kind of get that. But the idea of calling it a song set it makes it a little bit less, um, this is my concert list, and a little bit more like these songs are set together, like that they, they perform a, a, a whole function based upon the parts thereof it, it makes it a it's, now you have a complete set as it were that's fascinating i can't believe i never thank you i mean that's worth the price of admission for this this conversation <laughs> at least uh well uh sarah and annalee thank you incredibly uh for taking some time out of your very very busy schedules in uh both of you across town from each other in ottawa uh to to talk about the stuff today thank you for this article it's really helpful thank you for the work that you're doing and uh, i just pray blessings on you guys as you continue on your various expeditions into not just academia but into the church and see i can tell you guys have both have very pastoral hearts uh not just for your students but also for uh the churches that you actually have a an opportunity to lead and so i i thank you for that Thank you so much for having us. It's always a pleasure to chat about this stuff and really fun to chat about it with you. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark.